You know, when I teach, I always like to back up a little bit and start so that we can get a little grasp on where we've been. We have spent I don't know how long in the book of Acts. We're almost done with it. Uh, perhaps for a Thursday night study, we bit off more than we could chew because it's gone on for such a long, long time. But... We've understood it in a way that we've never understood it before, rather than just a general kind of an overview. Acts is one of those pivotal places in the scripture. It's a hinge, and a large door swings upon that hinge. If it were only that the Gospels were recorded, and the Epistles recorded, and not Acts, we would have so many unanswered questions. We would wonder about so many things, where they came from and how we got to where we are today that we really wouldn't understand unless we had this book. It is, it bridges a gap between the Gospels and the Epistles. Of course, if a person wants to ask how it all began, how did Christianity begin? What are its roots? We'd point them to the Gospels. We'd say, hey, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Read the Evangelists, the Synoptic Gospels, and that great story of John, the deity of Christ. We'd read about his life, his teachings, his ministry, his death, his burial, his resurrection. But then a person would ask, well, how did the church come into being? We don't read of elders and deacons or church officials at all in the Gospels. Jesus doesn't mention them. He doesn't even predict them. How did we get to where we are today? We read the epistles and we see the formation of such leadership and the church intact, but how did it come to that place? Moreover, how did the Gentiles get into the picture? After all, we're dealing here with a Jewish Messiah. And the fulfillment of the promises given to a nation, the nation of Israel. How did the Gentiles suddenly come into the picture so that they're so involved and so many letters by Paul and even Peter were written to such? And the book of Acts is that pivotal point that answers all of those questions for us. In Acts chapter 27, it's a sea voyage that we've been studying. In fact, it's been called um, one of the greatest ancient accounts, if not the greatest ancient written account of a sea voyage in any type of literature. This is Paul's trip to Rome. Sometimes people call it his fourth missionary journey. The only difference between this one and his previous three is that the previous three were ones he decided to go on and he controlled them. He didn't control this. Though God controlled it, he was a prisoner of Rome going on a First, a corn ship, a cargo ship carrying grain to Rome from Alexandria, Egypt, and a prisoner ship. He was bound as a prisoner. But he's finally getting his dream. He has wished for such a long time to get to Rome. The Holy Spirit put that in his heart. He told the church on his way to Jerusalem when he was going through Asia Minor, being constrained by the Spirit, he said, After Jerusalem, I must see Rome also. And uh, we have covered several verses already in chapter 27. And uh, all I can say about Paul, as I've read this chapter over and over again, is this guy was stubborn. In a sanctified way, it was sanctified stubbornness. 
Nothing would get him down. He wanted to go to Jerusalem and people said, Don't go, Paul, they'll kill you. He said, What do I care about life? My life is bound up in God. Why do you cry and weep and make a big fuss about me going to Jerusalem? I'm ready to die for Jesus Christ. Here you are whining and fussing because I'm going to get hurt. Who cares? I don't even count my own life dear to me, he said. I want to finish my course with joy. That's sanctified stubbornness. Then in Jerusalem, he gets arrested, taken to Caesarea, undergoes three trials, appeals to Caesar Nero, and now he's on his way to Rome, gets in a shipwreck, and he's still not bummed out. In fact, he's the one on the ship who's encouraging everybody. Have hope in God. Trust the Lord. God spoke to me. We're going to be all right. I'd be great to hang out with a guy like that, especially when you travel. Because when you travel, things can go wrong. Plans can go awry. And to have a guy who's full of faith... So many people are full of pessimism. I knew this thing would end up like this. You had to get us in this mess. And that can eat on you. And sometimes when you're traveling with people like that, you just want to deck them. That's how you feel. How wonderful it is to have somebody filled with faith, because faith, like doubt, is also contagious. It breeds faith. When you see somebody strong and courageous, a rock... Trusting in the greater rock. It's just there's something compelling about that kind of a life. And so we see in this whole chapter, Paul the Apostle is like that. Now, we mentioned that this was not the best time to travel by sea. In the ancient times, navigators would plot their traveling according to the seasons of the year. And we read that the Day of Atonement, the feast, had already passed. So during that year, that was at the first part of October back then during the year that we're reading about in Acts 27. And the ancient peoples said that sailing after the time of September was risky, after November was impossible. They're sort of sandwiched in between in mid-October. So it was risky at best, getting very dangerous for sailing. And remember, back then they had no navigational equipment. They didn't have a sexton aboard the ship. They didn't have a compass. So it was all visual. If the clouds came in, or if you were socked in in fog or at night, you could see nothing. You'd either want to anchor up, because you travel close to the shore, you wouldn't make a beeline straight to your destination. You'd want to travel up and along the coast so you could spot land if there was any problems. If there were problems, you could lower the anchors, you could get on a dinghy or a lifeboat and get to shore. As they were traveling, Paul advised them. He said, gang... If I were you, I would stay here at Fair Havens as they took a little port. I think this is the safest place to be. We ought to stay the winter here. But this was a cargo ship. And the manager of the cargo ship had to pay bills at home. If he didn't deliver this stuff, if he had to spend the whole winter on this island, he wouldn't get paid for a long time. He wasn't ready for that. He had to pay off his new tent that he had just bought over in Alexandria, his new turbo diesel camel. He had bills to pay, and he didn't take Paul's advice. He, he listened to uh, uh, some of the others aboard the ship, and he sailed because an unexpected wind started blowing, a south wind, the Bible says. And they supposed that it was a favorable wind. 
As they started sailing into the wind, of course, we read that a northeastern wind called the Euroclidon, a headwind, tossed the ship back and forth and it was about to be broken. They threw stuff overboard. They tried their best to um, sail the thing into safe harbor. What they were really afraid of, we read in this chapter, is that they might be taken to a place called the Sirtis Sands. This huge sandbar off of Libya, off North Africa, where it was a, a ship's graveyard. Ships had been caught in that sandbar for years and the ships were squandered just all over that place. People died. They didn't want to get caught in that. And so we get down to uh, verse 15. When the ship was caught and could not head into the wind, we let her drive. Now we read in this chapter that because the ship was so strained, they put cables around it. That is, they would take a cable, take it off the side, wrap it underneath, and sort of tie it like a parcel so that thing wouldn't get broken apart. You see, the ships in those days... And they were primitive. They had one mast with one square sail made out of linen and hides. Thus, to sail into the wind was impossible with that kind of a configuration. You couldn't control the weaving pattern into the wind. And um, when you had a strong wind, if it was too strong, it would put strain upon the timbers of the ship. You'd have to let it down and let the ship drive. If you could anchor, fine. If you were in shallow water, you'd try to control it with the two uh, paddles that acted like rudders outside. It was a very difficult journey. Uh, The ships were built weird. The bow of the ship and the stern of the ship were equal. Except for some little gooseneck uh, configuration up at the front. It was hard to control in bad weather. And they experienced that. Now look over at verse 20. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days... And no small tempest beat on us. All hope that we would be saved was finally given up. They were desperate. They tried everything. They tried to manage the ship, put the sail down, put the sail up, put the anchors, tie cables underneath. Finally, they just gave up. They thought, we're going to die out here. Now, opportunities like that are always interesting if a Christian is around. Because people start asking deep questions. When they're in despair, they're more apt to listen. But after long abstinence from food, Paul stood in the midst of them and said, Men, you should have listened to me. And not sailed from Crete and incurred this disaster and loss. And now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only the ship. Here's this prisoner that nobody respected. He was the guy that said, my advice is that you stay here at Fair Havens and don't travel any further. I'd winter here. Ah, what do you know? You're a prisoner. You're a preacher. Now this prisoner kind of turns into Popeye the sailor man. He's eaten his spiritual spinach and everybody's going to look to him for strength and courage. And when they're despaired of life, when they're ready to cash it all in, Paul stands up, very courageous, a man of faith. Nothing gets him down. It's that sanctified stubbornness. He says, now don't lose heart, guys. We're going to be all right. The ship's going to be beat to smithereens, but we're going to be fine. 
A man of God or a woman of God is one who can stand in times of despair when everybody else is ready to throw themselves overboard and be an example of strength and courage. God is is here. We're going to make it. And people, as we said, naturally look to that kind of contagious fate. Well, darkness sets in and... uh, They're going to start praying here pretty soon in verse 29. But let's just, uh, to catch up from last week, read again verse 23. He says, For there stood by me this night an angel of the God whom I belong and whom I serve, saying, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. That was good news to Paul. That was his heart's desire. He wanted to share the gospel at the very heart of the Roman Empire. And who's the big cheese on the throne? It's Caesar Nero. He wanted to speak to Caesar. He couldn't wait to sink his spiritual teeth into the the emperor of the Roman Empire. Caesar Nero himself. And here God confirms what he already knew. That he wanted to go to Rome. He felt God wanted him to go to Rome and an angel of God stands by him watching this whole event saying, don't worry, you're going to stand before Caesar Nero in Rome. And indeed, God has granted you all of those who sail with you. Therefore, take heart, men. (laughs) They're giving up. Take heart, men, for I believe God that it will be just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. The best way to face life, to face the future, is with the promises of God. What do you do with God's promises? Oh, I underline them. In yellow. Oh, I use three, four different colors of my Bible. You see, it's not how you underline the promises of God, but how they underline you. And if they're really being used, the best way to face God's future, your future, with God is with his promises, his immutable promises, his word. And one thing I'm impressed with through the scriptures is the men and women that were of the greatest influence, like Paul, said, for I believe God just as it was told me. That's what's going to happen. I'm convinced of that. And he lived a life with that kind of a a convincing attitude. So he says, don't be afraid. It'll happen just as it was told me. However, we must run aground on a certain island. Now pause and think for a moment. Paul out there in the ship, out there in the sea, as near to God as he was in a synagogue or in the temple or praying with a group of Christians. The situation did not separate him from God and he knew it. God was with him. God saw everything going on. An angel of God stood with him. You know, on one hand, the idea of God with you and seeing everything is either terrifying or comforting. For some, it's terrifying. Because some people do things and live in such a way that if they really knew God was there watching, beholding good and evil, as the Bible says, they probably wouldn't do it. If Jesus fleshed out, stood there, I wonder what activities people would do, would perform. So on one hand, it's terrifying to think that God is there watching. Cain snuffed out his brother Abel. God was watching, but Cain didn't know it. Cain, uh, your brother's blood is crying from the ground. I saw the whole thing. It was terrifying. 
David committed adultery with Bathsheba. He stood on the housetop one night, and he looked over and he saw this gorgeous young woman. He was the only one watching her. And his eyes had a lustful feast. He followed through with it, went to bed with her. She became pregnant. Nobody knew, he thought. Uriah, her husband, was sent from the field. David tried to get them to lie together. Uriah wouldn't do it because he was a patriot, didn't want to enjoy the pleasures of home while his countrymen were out fighting in the field. So he had him killed. Again, nobody knew what he thought. He thought he was safe and he didn't repent until a prophet came to him, Nathan, and said, David, God has seen what you've done. And you will cause the Gentile nations to blaspheme because of your sin. Then there's the story of Belshazzar in the book of Daniel. He's partying down in Babylon. He takes the gold and silver vessels from Jerusalem that he has taken captive and has a drunken orgy with all of his cohorts, all of his friends, all of his concubines at a great feast in Babylon. And while he's partying down, he doesn't realize that God is watching everything going on in that party. He's watching every harlot approach his table. He's watching every eye that lusts after a woman or a man in that party. And while they're partying, a hand of a man writes on the wall, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting, and your kingdom is going to be given over to the Medes and the Persians. And it flipped him out as he saw this handwriting on the wall. Wow! What's that? I don't know. Go get Daniel. He'll know. Daniel said, God's been watching this whole thing, Belshazzar. What a terrifying experience to know that God is there seeing it all for some. For others, like Paul, what a comfort. God's been here all along through your trials, all along through your labor. Some of you labor hard for God and you complain, nobody sees my hard work for God. The most important one sees it. Well, I wish the pastor would see my work. I'm working so hard in this church. But the beautiful thing is you're not going to stand before me in eternity. I won't be giving you rewards. Jesus will. He'll say, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in the small things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. All right. It's all I need. It's all I need. He's with you in your times of temptation. He sees you in your times of trial. You're suffering. He's with you. That's a comfort. It was a comfort for Stephen as he was being stoned outside Jerusalem's walls. As rocks were pelting him, he said, Look, I see the heavens open. And Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. Jesus was welcoming Stephen, the first martyr, into the church. What a comfort that was. What a comfort it is to know that God is standing with me. I think of John, who wrote um, the book of Revelation, exiled to Patmos to die. He was all alone. Nobody saw him. There was no company. He had no friends, no radio. He was utterly alone. But he really wasn't, was he? Because he had a vision. And he said, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard a voice behind me, and I turned back, and it was Jesus, appearing in white, burnished bronze, and a sword coming from his mouth, the power of Jesus in fellowship with God. What a comfort to know that. And while Paul was comforted in the storm, he sheds that comfort to others. He's a catalyst. Look down at verse 29. Then 
fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and they prayed for day to come. I'm interested in that phrase. Whether you pray for it or not, day's going to come. But when you're in darkness, well, put it this way. There's something about suffering in darkness where you just want daytime to come. You're in pain. You can't sleep. Your body's throbbing, writhing in pain. You wish for day to come. There's something about daylight that's more comforting. At least you can see the environment you're suffering in. But there's this utter aloneness when it's dark. And during the night, even all of these, there's 276, I believe, people all all together aboard this ship, this chapter says. And they're all praying for day to come. I have found that affliction causes even the most ardent unbeliever to become suddenly religious. People who've had mild experiences with God at an early age, and they put God off for the pleasures of life and the pursuits of life. You know, they've got better things to do now that we're, we're yuppies now and we're getting into raising kids and businesses. You know, God. But just bring an affliction a time of darkness, a time of night. And all of a sudden, you become very interested in spiritual things once more. And you pray. I think, of course, of Jonah. All of the mariners that were aboard the ship Jonah was taking as he was going to Tarsus, they were expert sailors. None of them were believers in the God of Israel. But that storm scared them to death They threw the cargo overboard and it says, each one prayed to his own God. And here's Jonah sleeping in the bottom of the boat. This man of God sleeping while pagans are praying. You know you're in trouble then. Of course, Mike Warnke tells that that hilarious story of him being in Vietnam. (laughs) And he was with a guy, he said, in Vietnam who had an interesting collection on a chain across his neck. He had a cross on the chain. And also a star of David on the chain. And also a crescent moon uh, and uh, a symbol of um, uh, Islam. He had a little Buddha on the chain. Also some hair from a sheep, a rabbit's foot, all of these icons. And, and, And Warnke looked at him and said, What's with all of these things around your neck? And the guy just said, I believe. (laughs) Mike said, what do you believe in? The guy said, I don't know, but in my situation, I can't afford to offend anybody. I just believe. I'll take it all. That's sort of like these mariners aboard the ship. They're just praying. I don't care who will listen. They're just praying the day will come. The sailors were seeking to escape from the ship when they let down the skiff into the sea under pretense of putting out anchors from the prow. In other words, they took a little lifeboat. They were going to escape on their own. This little dinghy. And Paul came up with that, found out that they were plotting this. Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. This is fascinating to me. Here these guys are trying to escape, and Paul says, I'll tell you something. If they don't stay with us all together as a group, we're dead. Now, why would he say something like that? Go back to verse 20, 
4. The message to him was, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must be brought before Caesar. And indeed, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Paul took the message word for word, literally. Interesting. Hey, if we're not all together on this thing, if you're not with us, we're not going to make it. You tell him to stay in the ship. He believed literally the message and he put his hope firmly on the promises uh, that the angel gave him, the angel of God. Everyone has to stay aboard. And the soldiers cut away the ropes from the skiff and they let it fall off. Um, You could make kind of of a point here or an analogy. The point and the analogy being... um, the foreknowledge and predestination of God and the moral agency of man. On one hand, God promises everyone aboard is going to be safe. Don't worry about it. Not a hair will fall from your head. The ship will be beat up, but everyone will be saved. On the other hand, you have to stay in the ship for this to occur. Now, God made a promise that we'll all be alive, but you have to cooperate with that promise. You've got predestination here. You've got responsibility of man here. We've discussed this on several different studies, and let's admit it, it's not easy to understand. In fact, I have found that after the most arduous study that I can give on predestination, I create more questions than I answer. And here's the reason. On one hand, you have the vocabulary of God, and on the other hand, the vocabulary of man, in the Scripture, next to each other. You have the vocabulary of God, foreknowledge, election, predestination, sovereignty. Next to it, you have the vocabulary that pertains to man. Free choice, volition, responsibility. Both of those things are true, though they can seem contradictory. It's truths held in tension. God made a promise. Man cooperates with the promise, obeys God. But God knows the outcome because God has foreknowledge. He knows all things before they happen. And He can call them into existence as if they've already happened. In His mind, it's... It's happened because he sees the end from the beginning, an advantage we don't have. Now, watch. I'll get more questions afterwards. It's just tough. Those are truths held in tension. As the day was about to dawn, Paul implored them to take food, saying, Today's the 14th day you have waited and continued without food and eaten nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some nourishment. For this is for your survival, since not a hair will fall from the head of any of you. I like this about Paul. He was a visionary, a man of God, a man of faith, but he's intensely practical. He says, you guys need to eat food. You're going to die. You need nourishment. That's being practical. He wasn't so heavenly minded, he was no earthly good. He said, guys, it's been a long time since you've had any food. Let's eat up. Let's eat hearty. He knew that weak men were ineffective men. So he told them to eat, practical. When he said these things, he took bread and he gave thanks to God in the presence of them all. He was not ashamed to pray as people watched him. And when he had broken it, he began to eat. And they were all encouraged and they took food themselves. Do you see what's happening? They didn't listen to Paul's advice at first. Paul was this prisoner, this preacher. Who cares about it? But this man of faith, this man of courage, while everyone says we're going to die, all hope is lost, he says, hey, don't give up. God's here. I trust him. Stay on board. Eat up. If you don't eat, I'm going to eat. And he starts eating. They're all encouraged by his example. 
A man of faith is miles ahead of the man of the world. Contagious faith spurns them all on. They were all encouraged and they took food themselves. I think the most useful person is a calm person in times of distress. They're calm. They don't blow a fuse, flip out. Hey, I don't understand God's in this somehow. Let's be encouraged. Let's pray. Let's trust Him. Most useful. And in all, there were 276 persons on the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, threw out the wheat into the sea. And when it was day, and this is where we left off last week, we kind of went backwards, picked up a few new points, and we move onward uh, in verse 39, just to get the whole ship, uh, the journey and the shipwreck together. When it was day, they did not recognize the land, but they observed a bay with a beach unto which they planned to run the ship if possible. And they let go the anchors and left them in the sea, meanwhile loosening the rudder ropes, and they hoisted the mainsail to the wind, and they made for shore. Putting the anchors down would slow the ship down so they wouldn't crash suddenly. Hopefully it would grab upon the sand if they were close enough to the shore, and they, with the help of the wind, would push it while having enough drag so that they could coast into the sandbar instead of just crashing Uh, with the force of the sea. But striking a place where two seas met, obviously there was much sand and rocks on the bottom, they ran the ship aground and the prow stuck fast, remained immovable. So the front of the ship sticks into the sand, into the bottom. But the stern, that is the rear of the ship, was being broken up by the violence of the waves. Now, the soldiers' plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any of them should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wanting to save Paul, kept them from their purpose and commanded that those who could swim should jump overboard first and get to land. On one hand, you can't blame these soldiers for wanting to kill the prisoners. Here's why. According to Roman law, if the prisoners you were guarding escaped while you were guarding them, you as a soldier would receive the punishment that they should have gotten. If their punishment was death, and this prisonership, this journey, the kind of prisoners aboard seemed to indicate that, then these guys would be killed. So they thought, look, let's just kill all these guys. We're Roman citizens, Roman soldiers. We'll file our report, tell them what happened with the shipwreck, and we'll be off the hook. But again, God's sovereignty. God wasn't finished with Paul. God wanted Paul to stand before Caesar in Rome. God made a promise he was going to be there. You are invincible until God is finished with you. We've said that so often. It's true. You're invincible. God has a purpose for your life. When God's finished with you, nothing can hold you on this earth. Nothing can. And when I'm finished with my work, I don't want to hang out on this earth. When I am done, when God sees fit to take me home, however He does it, don't mourn for me. Whatever you do, don't say, Oh God, please bring him back. I would haunt you the rest of your life if you ever answered that prayer. If I was in sort of one of those comatose states and in or out, Oh God, bring... No. (laughs) Man, I was almost there. Why'd you pray that? (laughs) But until God's finished with you, He'll keep you here. So the greatest way to live life is to discover the purpose for which I am here. God, you've created me for a purpose. I'm here for a reason. 
I'm a believer. I'm a representative of the kingdom. Obviously, Lord, you put me here for a greater purpose than just an occupation to occupy my time, to put bread on the table and to raise children. You've given me a purpose to raise them for your glory, to teach people about your saving knowledge, your Savior, your Son. I've got a purpose for it. Help me to discover that purpose and flow with it. And so uh, the centurion wanting to save Paul kept them from their purpose, commanded that those who could swim could jump overboard first and get to the land, and the rest, some on boards and some on broken pieces of the ship, and I've always pictured in my mind coming from Southern California and loving to surf that if the waves were good enough and you had just the right piece of ship, you know, you could, you could get a good ride all the way to land. And so some actually went on boards, it says, and broken pieces of the ship and so that they all escaped safely to land. Now, we've got uh, enough time to just go through uh, verse 10 of chapter 28. That's really the purpose of tonight is to get the encapsulated version of this uh, sea voyage in one, one hit. When they escaped, they had found out that the island was called Malta. So they were about 60 miles south of Sicily. Not far from Italy, not far from the mainland, so they could get to Rome pretty easily. They had, uh, they had gone some 600 miles from Fair Havens, where Paul said, hey, I advise you to stick around Fair Havens. They were tossed back and forth in the ship, landed on Malta some 600 miles away from their first destination. And the natives showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire, and they made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. If you have a, an old King James version, it is actually translated more correctly in that version than in the New King James or any other version. It says the barbarians showed us unusual kindness welcoming us. That's the literal translation, barbarians. Though for our understanding, it's best to translate it natives. But the literal translation is barbarians. Now, don't picture in your mind these uh, people with spears, treacherous kind of people ready to tear them apart. The word barbarian has an interesting origin. In Greek, it's actually hoi barbaroi. And the Greeks used to call any unintelligible sound or language barbarian. Because to them, they would just say barbar. In other words, when you can't understand a language, you speak Greek, the greatest language of the ancient world. Any other language just sounds bar, 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 bar. You you know, it's, it's unintelligible. And so the word barbarian means unintelligible sounds spoken by non-Greek peoples. It came to just mean somebody who speaks an unintelligible language. And the word corrupted over years and uh, barbarian, we think, means somebody who's uncivilized. It just simply means somebody who didn't speak the Greek language. And so they were natives. They showed unusual kindness. They kindled a fire and made us all welcome because of the rain that was falling and because of the cold. Verse 3 gives you tremendous insight in the, into the character of Paul the Apostle. It's so simple that you'd probably pass over it, but read it slowly. But when Paul had gathered a bunch of sticks, a bundle of sticks, and laid them on the fire... A viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Paul was the kind of a person who just couldn't sit still. 
He had to be. If there's something to be done, if there's some ministry, if there's something practical, he was doing it. He just couldn't hang out and do nothing. Hey, if there's a fire to be built, I'll get some sticks. If it's to be maintained, I'll maintain it. He wasn't ashamed, though a great apostle, a man who could lay hands on the sick and have them healed, who could prophesy and preach in some of the greatest theaters and had one of the greatest brains in the ancient world, making a fire wasn't too low for him. He was a servant. The Bible says in Zechariah, when God prophesied that the temple would be rebuilt, he says, don't despise the day of small things. And there are people who aspire to the ministry who despise the day of small things. Not knowing that the ministry begins in the latrines. You want to serve, man, look around. There's Pick up stuff on the floor. Come and clean stuff. Join the crew for the third service, working in the nursery. Visit the people. The opportunities that Nick shared tonight in the prisons, the infirmaries, reach out, they're there. Something to be done, do it. That's a real servant. And people will observe that. Servant's attitude, always available to help, always volunteering. And God will raise you up in due time. But that's where it begins. I know that if you came around... The church I came out of in Southern California and you went into the office and you said, I feel called to the ministry. I know the answer the pastors would give you because I've heard the answer many times over. You want to be in the ministry? Great. Pick up cigarette butts in the parking lot for two weeks and then clean the restrooms. That's where it begins. Let's see how faithful you are in that. And they mean it. There was something to be done. Paul was there to do it. There are some people who just punch the time clock. Time's up, boom, they're out. And there are people who are, Paul described it in another epistle, addicted to the ministry. They love it. They love opportunities to serve. Day and night, it's it's not a job, it's not a chore, it's a thrill. It's an opportunity. Paul was like that. While he was doing it, this practical guy, a snake comes out, grabs a hold of his hand. Notice the reaction of the natives. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, No doubt this man is a murderer. They couldn't be farther from the truth, could they? Whom, though he has escaped the sea, yet justice does not allow him to live. Now he shook the creature off into the fire, suffered no harm. However, they were expecting that he would swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had looked for a long time and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he's a god. (laughs) He's a murderer. No. He's a God. How fickle the crowd can be. Like Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Hosanna, King. A couple days later, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. Same crowd. Persuaded differently. The opinions that these natives had, that he was a murderer because something happened to him, is kind of the religion of the world throughout mythology, throughout primitive history, even to this present day, people have this idea in their minds that if something bad happens to somebody, it must be punishment from God. They must have done something wrong, and this is fate. This is what they deserve. The Greeks had a goddess named Nemesis. She was the goddess that presided over the earth. Nothing escaped her view. She dealt out justice. If somebody did evil, she caused sorrow to come to them. 
And the Greeks believed in that whole ideology. So they're on Malta. They see some, uh, a snake fastened to Paul's hand. <gasps> he did something bad. Of course, Job's friends thought this way. He was sick. He lost his family. He had boils all over his body. He's still trusting God. Well, in and out. His three comforters, his friends, came to him and remember their philosophy. Well, Job, you must have sin in your life because if you were really serving God and had lots of faith, you'd be healed. Sounds like another philosophy we hear about today, doesn't it? The faith movement. Oh, you're suffering because you don't have enough faith that God will heal you. Or you have sin in your life, that's why this has come upon you. That's the philosophy of paganism, fatalism, apart from God. What's interesting is that we go on and, of course, they saw that no harm came to him. They changed their minds and they said that he is a God. You remember when the disciples came up to Jesus and there was a man who had an ailment? He was born blind. Remember the disciples' questions to Jesus? They had the same kind of thinking. They said, Master, who sinned? Was it his parents or was it him that he is blind, that he has this condition? Remember they asked him that question. They thought there must be a direct cause and effect relationship to this disease. Obviously, this kind of a disease must originate from some sin, either from his parents or from him. Jesus said, neither he nor his parents sinned that he was born this way, but that the glory of God might be manifested in him. God had this happen. He's about to be healed to demonstrate the power of Jesus. Jesus gave another story when Pilate, the governor, had mingled the blood of some Galileans with sacrifices. And at the same time, the, the Tower of Siloam there in Jerusalem had fallen upon 18 people and crushed them to death. And people, the scuttlebutt around Jerusalem is that these Galileans must be worse sinners than everyone else. And these people whom the tower fell on must be worse sinners than everyone else. Jesus said, do you think that they were worse sinners, these Galileans or the people who the tower fell on? No, he said. No. But I say to you, unless you repent, you will likewise perish. Got down to the spiritual nitty-gritty with them. Instead of answering the whole problem of why is there suffering in the world, he said, unless you repent, you're going to perish. <laughs> the spiritual nuts and bolts of life. I suggest that you follow Jesus' example when you answer such questions. Well, why? I don't know why, but you know what? The body is not as important as the eternal destiny of the soul. Unless you repent, you will likewise perish. But Jesus said they weren't worse sinners. Because somebody is suffering doesn't mean that it's a sign that he's a worse sinner, a worse person. Not at all. If that were true, what about Jesus, who suffered the worst, being beaten by men, crucified, hung on a cross to die? What about Paul the Apostle, who said, in stripes more abundant, in persecution and affliction above strength, above measure, I was beaten, I was shipwrecked, I've been in perils of the sea, of countrymen, so on and so forth. Or Paul who had a thorn in the flesh that he prayed God would deliver him from and God said, my strength is sufficient for me, for you. Doesn't follow suit. Now in the region, we have a few verses and we'll close with verse 10. There was an estate of the leading citizen of the island whose name was Publius. 
who received us and entertained us courteously for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick of a fever and dysentery. He had it bad. I don't know if you've ever had these things together. I've been in India and I've taken guys from the United States with... Thank God I've never been sick in India. Because the hospitals, I don't know which is worse, being sick or being in one of their hospitals to get better. It's, It's a close call. But I brought a friend with me who did get dysentery while he was over there and oh, it was horrible. Paul went in to him and prayed. He laid his hands on him and he healed him. I love it. God was orchestrating this whole journey. The word for healing in verse 8, healed, is the Greek word that means divine healing. Iamoi or something like that. I can't pronounce it. But look at verse 9. When this was done, the rest of those on the island who had diseases also came and were healed. The word healing in this verse is different. It's now the word therapuo, which means therapy, which is an ancient translation for modern medicine or for medicine, medical attention. Because of these two words used in these verses, the scholars believe that on one hand there was divine healing, but in verse 9 people came not only to Paul, but to Luke, who was a physician who attended Paul. Paul did have a gift of healing, but they did believe in using medicine at the time. Therapuo, they were healed. Luke was a physician. He attended to their needs. They had ailments, they had common colds and so forth, and he uh, used the medicine, the medical knowledge, and hence, if that's the case... You have the first example of a medical missionary in the scripture, Luke, Dr. Luke, pulling out his bag and his stethoscope and going to town. They also honored us in many ways, and when we departed, they provided such things as were necessary. What's interesting is that Paul himself could exercise the gift of healing, At the same time, Paul believed in, A, the sovereignty of God, that sometimes God does not heal, because he said, I had an affliction, and most people think it was ophthalmia or some kind of a physical affliction in 2 Corinthians 12. He said, I prayed to God three times. God said, basically, no, my grace is enough for you. You don't get a healing. Three times. Though he could heal through the agency of the Holy Spirit, he himself suffered physically. Reminds me of Beethoven. Gave the world some of the most beautiful music. He was stone deaf. I believe in healing. I believe it with all my heart. I believe that God heals today miraculously. I believe there's nothing too hard for God. We often limit God. Well, that was back then. But God can heal today. But I must confess to you, I do not understand it. Now, I know people who claim that they understand it totally. But they are willingly blind to some obvious facts. I've watched people with the greatest faith that God would touch them. Man, they they had so much faith they could give you some and they'd have some left over. They had faith that they'd be healed. I had a woman come on my office. She came in a wheelchair. She said, I am here because I know that God will heal me today. And I thought, how can she lose? You know, it's like the woman who said, I know if I touch the hem of Jesus' garment, I'm going to be healed. 
She reached out. That was the point of contact to release her faith. She was healed. She said, God told me to come in. And I, my faith is going to make me, I'm going to walk out of this wheelchair. I said, all right. And I'll piggyback on your faith and I'll have faith and we'll pray together. And we prayed a prayer of great faith. And God did not heal her. I've watched people with absolutely no faith walk away completely, totally healed. I separated my acromioclavicular joint one time while I was skateboarding in California. It hurt, man. I was in a, a stationary cast. I couldn't move it. Guy at one night said, let's just pray for you. And he prayed not... It wasn't a hallelujah Shandai prayer. It was just a, a kind of, Lord, I just pray you just touch him and heal him. And I'm thinking, yeah, right. All right. Yeah, Lord. <clears throat> yeah. I didn't have much faith at all. I worked in medicine. Why do I need faith? Just keep this thing set. Give me some medicine. I'll be all right. God touched me instantaneously. I had it x-rayed before and after. It closed, that articulation, that acromioclavicular articulation that was separated, closed. I watched, I saw it, I felt it. The man at the gate, beautiful. In the early part of Acts, he had no faith to be healed. He said, I want some silver and gold. He, he didn't even, he was, he didn't expect a healing. Peter said, I don't have silver and gold, but in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, get up and walk, instantly heal. God breaks all the rules. He breaks all the rules. Now, what is dangerous in healing is simplistic teaching that is contrary to the Scripture. I.e., if you have enough faith, you will always walk in perfect health. If you confess your sin, you will walk in perfect health. If you are sick, it's because you don't have enough faith and you have sin in your life. Thus, you must make a positive confession, bind any doubt, Refuse to say anything negative or allow negative thoughts and just confess that which is positive and you will be in perfect health. Now, I've spoken to people who have been the victims of such horrible thinking, anti-scriptural thinking. Guy called me on the radio one time while I was doing an interview. Spoke to me afterwards and I gave a teaching on this on the radio uh, in, in, at a station one time. Um, uh, he called me because I was doing a live interview and he said, I am so thankful for your show because now I know that God loves me. And all these years I felt that God didn't love me, that I had some sin. I didn't know what it was, but I felt God was against me. I said, why? He said, because I've had this disease and my parents over the years constantly tell me that I'm living in sin and I have no faith and I'm a failure and a bad witness before God. And I've lived with that guilt for years. I thought, oh, how tragic. When he should be encouraged. I said, do your parents have faith? They said, oh yeah. I said, let them heal you then. These that speak of such great faith, I applaud them, I really do. I believe in the gift of faith. It's a gift. And God can use it to unlock miraculous things. But when people start putting down others because they have a malady saying, I'm more spiritual than you. I have faith. You don't. You have sin. I say, buddy, go walk the hospital wards and empty them. Put your faith on trial if you've got it all.
I've got a sheet that was given to me at a meeting one time years ago when I was speaking in another country. It was from America. That's where this crazy stuff starts. And it was sent to a foreign third world country. And, and I saw the address that I know this is. And here it is. This stuff is polluting other countries. And it was called How to Keep Your Healing. And it says, when you're healed, you often, in fact, usually have some or all of the same symptoms. <laughs> right then I knew something was wrong. So don't confess the symptoms. And and they say, uh, instead, attend four to five faith meetings per week. Boy, that's out on the town, man, an awful lot. And when you have the symptoms of pain or of the affliction that you used to have now that you've been healed, but you still have it, you still feel it, just stand upon the promises of God and don't confess it. Hey, man, as I read the New Testament... When Jesus touched people, they knew it. They didn't say, hey Jesus, thanks for the healing, but how come I'm still limping? Well, don't confess it. Stand on my promise. Well, I can't even stand. i got crutches. I can't. Well, don't worry about it. Hobble in faith. I had a man come up to me on crutches. He said, I've been healed. I looked at his ankle. It was in a cast. I said... How come you're still in a cast? He said, I'm healed. Uh, how come you're on crutches? How come you're limping? Well, those are just the symptoms. But it really, it really has happened. I thought, man, my Jesus does a whole lot better work than that. Don't you blame that one on Him. Don't you go tell the world God healed you with that kind of a witness. You're making God sound like a bad physician. You're going to have the world looking and go, I don't want to trust him for a healing. If that's the work he does, no thanks. Don't want it. I'd like to close this off by reading something to you by Michael Green. That I agree with, after reading his book, God does not always choose to heal us physically, and perhaps it is well he does not. How people would rush to Christianity and for all the wrong motives if it carried with it automatic exemption from sickness. What a nonsense it would make of Christian virtues like long-suffering, patience, endurance, if instant wholeness were available for all Christians who were sick. What a wrong impression it would give of salvation if physical wholeness were perfectly realized on earth while spiritual wholeness were partly reserved for heaven. What a curious thing it would be if God were to decree death for all of his children while not allowing illness for any of them. God is not your puppet. He is not your heavenly butler. He is the sovereign God who delights in you, loves you, and prescribes for you the best. And sometimes God will instantly heal you and you ought to pray for it. And you don't have to walk away guilty if after praying in faith and being prayed for scripturally in faith, God says, my grace is sufficient for you. Be strong in the midst of your weakness with my strength. Paul could heal, was not always healed. Heavenly Father, you're the great physician. 
Nothing's too hard for you. All things are possible for you. You told us of the tremendous potential if we had faith as of a mustard seed. But Lord, mixed in that is the sovereignty of our divine Lord. As played out in lives of people such as Paul and Timothy, who was sick, and Paul told them to take some medication of their time. We trust you, Lord, but we don't understand all of your ways. You said your ways are above our ways, past finding out. We simply, Lord, trust our lives to you. Whether we stay at fair havens or we face a headwind, you're the same Lord and you're just as near to us. I pray that we would be as Paul and believe just as you have said. That we might be saved through every difficulty. In the name of Jesus, amen.